Section 24 of the English Restoration and Louis the Fourteenth by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19 Invasion of the United Provinces, Part 1. 1. French Occupation louis had spoken of travelling safely in the united provinces but none really regarded the enterprise as a light one cond who was not wont to count danger highly confessed the anxiety he felt he even prophesied disaster temple compared louis to a strong swimmer who plunges full of confidence in the water but a strong current the wasting of his strength or an accident will surely sweep him away every provision was made for a difficult and dangerous expedition the magnificent force collected at charleroi was complete throughout its equipment vast stores were laid up at noyce a little below cologne and the labour of transport thus saved over half the route had de witt been seconded with ability this advantage would have been wanting to louis he had sent a detachment of cavalry to surprise noyce but the lack of discipline among the men who betrayed their approach by a continuous fusillade upon the fowls and geese along the route frustrated the design his project for anticipating the declaration of war by entering brest rochelle and other open french ports and destroying the ships which were being fitted out there was rendered futile by the want of a strong central authority the jealousy of zealand caused the failure of a still bolder design this was no less than to repeat the chatham exploit to sail up the thames before the english fleet could issue out and there in the heart of his kingdom challenge the power of charles before the zealand squadron had joined the fleet the bulk of the english vessels were out of the river and though van ghent with a number of light ships reached sheerness he could not force a further passage two routes were before louis by the meuse or by the rhine blocking the former stood maastricht a strong fortress garrisoned by dutch troops supposing this obstacle overcome and the line of the meuse followed the army would be confronted before it entered dutch territory by the Waal, a deep and wide river defended at the crossing point by nijmegen if the rhine route were chosen it would be necessary to capture four fortresses Orzoi, Rheinberg, Wesel, and Burich, then in Dutch hands. Following the right bank, the army would finally have to cross the Eisel, which leaves the Rhine just above Arnheim. It was determined to adopt the latter of these two plans. On May 5th, Louis joined the army at Charleroi. Marching swiftly along the Sambre, he led his forces near Liege on the Meuse. On the 15th, Massec, a little north, and Tongeren, a little south of Maastricht, was taken and garrisoned, that place being thus completely masked. Passing the Meuse at Vise, Louis reached his magazines at Noyce on the 31st. Here the army was divided, Condé crossing the Rhine at Kaiserwerth. On June 2nd, the fortresses were simultaneously attacked. By the 6th, Turenne had taken Orzoi, Burich, and Rheinberg on the left bank, while Wesel on the right surrendered to Condé. Crossing at Wesel, Turenne rejoined Condé, and on the 11th the whole force was before the Eisel, 
faced by william with all the troops he could muster Condé now offered to wager that he would force a passage with a loss of less than four hundred men a plan even less dangerous was adopted by crossing at tollhaus between the outflows of the val and the eisel the whole army might easily be placed in the region between the val and the rhine known as the Betua. robbed of the volume of the val the river is here easily fordable by cavalry william had moreover neglected to defend it in force the celebrated passage of the rhine therefore which graced by the young monarch's presence aroused such enthusiasm in france has been described by napoleon as an operation of the fourth order it was made with only one serious mishap Condé, as he led the dash into the river was wounded in the wrist and could take no further part in the advance the next day a bridge was thrown over and the whole army crossed into the Betua. the line of the isle being thus turned william fell back towards amsterdam with the regiments of holland hilders and utrecht numbering some twelve thousand men the rest refused to take part in the defence of any province but their own and were left uselessly cooped up in anheim nijmegen and the isle fortresses had louis followed conde's advice and sent his cavalry straight upon amsterdam the campaign would probably have ended at a blow yielding however to the presumption of louvois he ordered turenne to complete the conquest of the Betua, while himself after investing nijmegen crossed the rhine once more below arnheim took that town and proceeded leisurely to reduce the isle forts the mistake was well-nigh redeemed by the enterprise of the count of rochefort who with eighteen hundred men made a dash for molden within sight of amsterdam in order to secure the sluices passing william and capturing as he sped on royce amersfoort and narden a few of his men reached molden only to find that at the critical moment john maurice had thrown in a garrison returning on his track rochefort on june twenty third entered utrecht which william had abandoned when the inhabitants refused to sacrifice their gardens and villas for its defence louis however in spite of the check at molden felt sure of his prey advancing from the isle he took up his quarters at utrecht published a proclamation calling upon the towns which still held out to surrender under the severest penalties of war and waited for the submission of amsterdam but that submission never came as early as april the supreme necessity had been foreseen by de witt all had been in readiness to open the sluices and cut the dikes on june fifteenth the memorable resolution was come to by the eighteenth the sacrifice was consummated the sea poured in placing a waste of water between louis and amsterdam and the province of holland at least was saved the citizens worked with the intensest energy to provide for their defence the archives and state treasures were transferred thither from the hague and the states-general held their sittings there the mills were set to grind powder instead of corn the regiments which had followed william were taken into the pay of holland every fourth man among the peasantry was enlisted marines and gunners were drawn from the fleet a strong force was sent to guard the shores of the zelderzee while a swarm of light vessels rendered any attempt of the french ships to make use of the inundation 
hopeless the resolution of the men of holland rose day by day now that they were fighting for their own province the republic had been well-nigh lost through the want of imperial spirit it was now saved by the vigour of local patriotism a gleam of light came from zealand louis had left behind him a strong force near at to watch the spanish low countries their commander hearing that adenbush which guarded the entry into zealand was weakly garrisoned marched through spanish territory with five thousand men and suddenly appeared before the town attacking with his advanced guard he was driven back with loss a second assault with his whole force was even more disastrous while to complete his discomfiture the captain of a zealand vessel landed his crew of two hundred men and by a vigorous flank attack so well seconded a sortie of the garrison that the french were compelled to retreat with great loss in killed and prisoners by this spirited feat of arms zealand was placed in safety and french troops were shown to be not invincible thus saved on land by a desperate appeal to nature the republic had been saved at sea by the valour of her sailors on june seventh Rowder encountered the united fleets of france and england in southwald bay at seven in the morning they joined battle Rowder, with whom was cornelius de witt held the centre he ordered the pilot to lay his vessel the seven provinces alongside james's flagship the prince while Bankers and Van Ghent attacked the French squadron under Estray and the English left wing under the Earl of Sandwich, respectively. Within two hours the prince was so shattered that James, among whose faults a lack of personal bravery can never be numbered, was compelled to row off under the fire of the enemy and hoist his flag upon the St. Michael. Before the day ended the St. Michael too sank under him and he barely escaped to the London. On the English right, Estray fell back pursued by bonkers, while on the left a terrible fight raged throughout the long summer's day. Von Ghent was killed early in the action. Sandwich, after a desperate resistance to overwhelming attacks, perished with his son by the sinking of the boat in which they were rowing to another ship. Rowder, who had been seriously endangered by the absence of bonkers, recovered ascendancy late in the evening and when night fell the english were falling back with a loss of five ships of the line twenty-five hundred men and no fewer than eighteen captains a dense fog prevented Rowder from pushing his victory next day but he had done his work he had at the critical moment preserved the coasts of the republic from attack and was able to give his attention to secure the safe harbouring of the east india fleet two the orange reaction murder of the de Witts. the prospect of final rescue was however so dim that the states-general determined to negotiate with louis when their deputation reached his camp at Duchebourg on the isle they were told by louvois that satisfaction for the allies of france and the payment of the entire expenses of the war were necessary preliminaries to a treaty the states-general were disposed to yield but the deputies of amsterdam and the provincial estates of holland stood firm come what might they declared that they would have no part in such a submission in the vehement discussions which had arisen de witt had had no share each day of misfortune had led more definitely to his fall a unity of command grew indispensable the restoration of the stadtholderate was demanded with increasing insistence 
and to this restoration he was regarded as the main obstacle the most atrocious calumnies especially from the pulpits of the calvinistic clergy who were vehemently in william's interests were levelled against him he was accused of being an accomplice of louis and of having sent to venice a large sum of public money for his own use on june twenty first he was attacked in the streets and left for dead and on the same day an attempt was made at dortrecht upon the life of his brother cornelius one of the ruffians was captured and hung the others who were well known found to william's disgrace a safe refuge in his camp this deed only stimulated the reaction one by one the towns of zealand and then of holland proclaimed william the stadtholder he was summoned to dortrecht where he found the streets gay with orange and white flags the white in punning reference to the grand pensionary's name below the orange on july first the provincial estates of holland and zealand sent to the towns where it was received with enthusiasm their vote for the abrogation of the perpetual edict and on july sixth the prince was proclaimed stadtholder by both provinces with all the privileges of his ancestors the election of the mayors of towns being alone reserved in this vote hildes utrecht and Offereisel were unable to concur since they were in the hands of the french while friesland and Honigen retained as stadtholder the son of their former governor henry casimir of nassau at the same time the states-general named the prince henceforward william the third captain and admiral-general of the republic for life saving the privileges of henry casimir from this moment louis had to reckon with the resistance not merely of a valiant and stubborn people driven to desperation but of such a people swayed by a will as proud and as tenacious as his own of this reaction the national need had been the immediate cause it represented also the triumph of the democratic spirit over the merchant aristocracy which had so long kept the mass of people as it had kept william under its control a terrible crime now signalized this triumph the enmity against the de Witts had been disarmed neither by the murderous attack upon them nor by the dignified address in which after recounting the services of nineteen years john de witt resigned to the provincial estates of holland his charge as grand pensionary the populace determined on a full accomplishment of their design the blow fell first upon cornelius who accused of plotting the murder of william was enticed to the hague and there by order of the court of holland put to the torture and ordered to be banished from holland and west friesland as he lay crippled from the rack the mob surrounded the prison to prevent his departure by a feigned message his brother was induced to visit him there means were found to remove the guards who protected the prison from attack then bursting open the gates the crowd rushed to the room where the brothers were expecting their fate they found cornelius stretched on the bed while john de witt read aloud from the bible a blow struck the reader on the face and covered him with blood then cornelius was dragged to his feet almost before the brothers had exchanged a last kiss he was hurled to the bottom of the stairs pushing their victims before them the mob rushed into the street and there the butchery was completed as john de witt struck to the earth raised himself on his knees and holding his clasped 
hands to heaven, opened his lips to utter a last prayer. He was dashed backwards, a man placed his foot upon his throat, and crying aloud, at last the perpetual edict is repealed, blew out his brains with a pistol. The bodies were stripped and horribly outraged, and then in the presence of a Calvinistic clergyman were dragged through the streets to the scaffold and hung by the feet amid the jeers of the people. Upon no one did this foul deed throw more disgrace than upon William. By his ungenerous coldness after the first attack, and by his protection of the assailants, he had made it evident that he was not likely to hinder the bloody work in hand. Not a word escaped him to control the popular passion. When appealed to for troops to quell the riot, he had turned a deaf ear, and when the murder was completed, he not only protected the ringleaders, but actually conferred upon them public preferment. The poor excuse that can be made for him is that by active steps to prevent this blind desire for vengeance, he might have imperiled his newly acquired position. End of section 24